0: Welcome to the modern enterprise podcast. This is a podcast tailored for enterprise IT leaders wanting to transform their organization into a more modern and agile enterprise where software drives the innovation. I am Chris Subramanian, founder of Rashidot Research, a research firm focused narrowly on modern enterprise. In this podcast, we will talk about the trends reshaping the IT landscape that falls in line with the modern enterprise framework. I have been advocating in the industry. For more information on our research, please visit www.rishidot.com that is r-i-s-h-i-dot-com. or read our research articles at Stacksense.io, stacksense dot I-O. We are reinventing industry research for the data driven world by opening up our data and research process through GitHub. We encourage you to join us in the research process by storing our repos and doing a pull request whenever appropriate. This will get your voices heard as a part of our research process. You can find our repos at www.github.com slash rishidot. That's github.com R-I-S-H-I-D-O-T. Please subscribe to this podcast at soundcloud.com slash modern enterprise let us now move on to today's show today's guest is rob hirschfield he is the founder of uh, raken i know rob for quite some time ever since the beginning of openstack and uh, we have been uh, talking a lot about openstack and then uh, kubernetes so he is an awesome thought leader in the space he understands open source he understands uh, automation so I thought he's a great guy to come on the Modern Enterprise uh, podcast and talk about how enterprises should be looking at automation in the services world. So uh, welcome, Rob. Uh, it's great to have you. And uh, can you sort of like introduce a little more uh, about yourself and, and your company?
1: I would be happy to. Racken is a company that we founded, boy, out of out of sort of our battle scars of early OpenStack, actually even pre-OpenStack, days where we were we were starting to deal with these complex multi-node hyperscale services and trying to help people operate them and what we really found was that it was very hard to create a standard best practice so that when people would use one of these platforms they could repeat what they were successful at you know time and time again so what we found was you know even you know between two customers was really hard. Even within a customer site, people were having trouble doing repeated deployments of anything. And Amazon, you know, people go to Amazon, and, and things are a little bit more standardized, so that's helpful. But they, they weren't able to create this repeatable success pattern. And that's what and grew up out of. Uh, there's an open source project that we sponsor called Digital Rebar, and that is really an orchestration system that is that does composable ops. And we can talk about composability and things like that. But what we wanted to be able to do is isolate all the changes between environments and hardware providers and DevOps tools and clouds and allow us to bring in something like a Ansible playbook and use an Ansible playbook in a whole bunch of different environments or a chef cookbook or a puppet module. Right? We wanted to create, you know, functionally hybrid portability for companies. And that's what Rackin does. Uh, it's a software product that provides that and then we support it.
0: And uh, is it uh, entirely open source or uh, uh, do you also have a proprietary component
1: to that? And what is the monetization model? So uh, we support it on a per node basis. It is open source. We have a UX, the, a user interface, web, web interface that Racken supports and maintains as a Racken add-on piece. But we're very careful to make sure that end-to-end functionality for people is completely open source because we believe very strongly in that. And one of the things we've done, I'm... I'm I'm excited to to talk about is our Kubernetes work and other work we do just uses the upstreams. So like our Kubernetes deployment is not a rack and Kubernetes deployment. It's just the upstream Ansible playbooks. And then we package and automate them and make them upgradable and supportable. All that's really important, but we don't pull people into a rack and distribution of Kubernetes. Our goal is to help people run what's in community, not create a specialized version.
0: Okay, so uh, before we talk uh, about uh, OpenStack and about uh, Kubernetes and where everything is heading, I would like to get your thoughts on uh, how you see the world. Like uh, There are uh, puritan written cloud uh, only pundits on one side, then you have the legacy companies trying to teach, uh, hey, no, cloud is all like uh, nonsense. I know uh, you. We both stand in between, uh, probably at uh, different points in that uh, uh, line. But uh, I, I, to, just to set context, I would like to take your thoughts on how you see everything evolving. We are, we are we've definitely. I, I, I'm sure we both agree that uh, today it's uh, open hybrid cloud. But uh, yeah. where do you see it going? Uh, probably five years from now, ten years from now. So that it sets
1: context for our discussion. Wow, it's a great question. I, I am a very much of a hybrid cloud person. I have, you know, I think that when I look at one vendor owning everything, there there is never a good ending in that story. And so even if even if I think everything goes to public cloud, which which I don't, all of it going to Amazon is is sort of an anti pattern for most companies. Exactly. But what we believe in and what we're working really hard to do is create workload portability. So I believe very strongly in the vision of public cloud which is that you should stop caring about your infrastructure. Yep. That doesn't mean that you should stop owning infrastructure, it doesn't mean that you should stop doing colo or stop buying servers or any of that. What I think it means is that we're coming into an age where we can automate infrastructure to such a degree that it doesn't look like data centers did 10 years ago, that you can rack a server and have it go through completely automated provisioning and BIOS updates and management processes, and then ultimately a small group of people maintain it. I do think that there's a a developer rebellion against uh, DevOps to an extent, really against infrastructure where developers have decided for good reason that they don't want to mess with infrastructure concerns. And so Kubernetes is a good example of that. Lambda, serverless Lambda is a good example of that, where developers are saying, you know what? I I just want to write code. I want to own it all the way to production, but I don't want to mess with DNS and certificates and how many servers I have and load balancer groups and all this infrastructure stuff. Make that go away for me. And so when I think about that mentality, of course, Amazon's huge because Amazon takes care of a lot of infrastructure pieces. But if you're running an application that's big enough to need 100 servers or more servers, which really isn't that much, doesn't take that much to do anymore, then, boy, renting those servers by the month uh, from Amazon can be pretty expensive.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, I think I believe, you know, I think that companies need choices and I think that, uh, if a company like Racken is successful, our mission is to make infrastructure, you know, m- order of magnitude easier to manage than it is today.
0: Yeah. I, I think I agree with you. Like, uh, that, that is my point of view, too, though I sort of tend to be a proper, proponent of public cloud. I, I uh, In my opinion, as far as an application is concerned, the infrastructure should be there and the underlying uh, is completely irrelevant. So, the, the, uh, from that angle, I also agree with you. And also, public cloud could be the way to go forward from today's point of view. I ah. would and all that. In my opinion, probably the very underlying nature of cloud will change from uh, uh, the centralized model of public cloud today to uh, more P2P model with so many devices spread all around the world. Probably, yeah. if you have a better abstraction, maybe like uh, the future of uh, cloud itself will be different. So, that's my opinion.
1: I think that that is a very valid... Form. I, I Public cloud should be part of everybody's IT plan, yeah. period. It, it it really needs to be. The The idea though is that it's not the only piece of your plan.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, you talked about uh, workload portability and that is one of my favorite topics too. That's okay. one of the reasons why I jumped onto Docker bandwagon when it came was like, uh, it sort of uh, helped, helped drive workload portability. So from your point of view, where do you see the standardization for workload portability, going like uh, well, what what do you think is that encapsulation that there will be the standard for workload portability at least in the coming years?
1: Oof, that's a great question. So containers have made a huge difference. You're right in in workload portability and people being able to package things in in reusable in reusable pieces. But it's not just that that containers make things more easier to move. They also encourage you to have smaller units. They encourage a lot more uh, flow within the system. So there's, there's a lot of things that go with portability beyond how you package your bits. So that's a big, that's a big piece of it. Smaller, smaller ship units is a big piece of it. And then what people miss with containers, especially like Kubernetes or swarm or pieces or, or infrastructure like that is it's very opinionated infrastructure. So, when you'd use the, these platforms, you don't choose your networking topology to nearly the same extent. You don't choose your storage backending the same way. It's, there's a lot more architectural opinion that comes in when you're using these platforms. And that's a lot of what creates the portability. So the deeper you go to infrastructure, the less portability you have, typically. I can talk about how we abstract that. And then as you get higher and higher in the stack, you gain portability by using abstractions. Containers are just an abstraction from that perspective. So I definitely agree that it's important and containers have been sort of that watershed moment for us doing it. But I think you're going to see portability out of Lambda Mm -hmm. and function as a service just as much as long as we start to standardize what those events are.
0: So so would you say that uh, the application architecture as in microservices uh, that is going on, that will help more on the portability, or uh, when you see the standardization emerging somewhere, like uh, uh, I do agree, uh, eventually you, will, you might be able to uh, put uh, land functions as a service and all those things. But uh, what is the encapsulation you think will be the, will make portability uh, as a uh, seamless thing? And uh, right now, like whatever we say uh, about open source and all, portability is not there. So when you see that, what is that abstraction or encapsulation depending on which angle you're coming in? So
1: that will define the portability. Yeah, oh boy, this is really hard. So you end up with APIs that sort of become dominant, like an S3 API as as an object storage model. And so the portability is created by having people pick up these de facto APIs. The thing that breaks portability is not the containers, it's really your service. The services that you depend on—it mm-hmm. really ha- is how much you embed assumptions deeply into your your code or your mm-hmm. structure layers. For example, the reason Ansible or Chef playbooks and and cookbooks are not particularly portable is because they have assumptions baked into them about interfaces that they that they can use or you know libraries that are required, you know, or just laydowns you know how disks are structured on a machine. And so the, the way that you, we get past those is we basically, we, we prep information, then we feed it in in a very standard way. So we, we break down code that assumes, I'm gonna get to the answer. This is, this is way technical, but bear with me. Yeah, sure. So if your code assumes that you have a drive, you know, you're attaching to ETH0 or SDB, because it's a two drive system, as soon as you make that assumption, you've lost portability. The way you fix that is you make that configurable and you pass configuration information into your environment so that it can then adapt. And then to make things more portable, you have to have a way to inject configuration information in a standard way. Um, that's really what digital rebar does. The magic behind digital rebar is all about stra- you know, injecting configuration across different heterogeneous systems in a in a consistent way. But this is true on any infrastructure you build. If you build containers that Assume that you're on you know your custom your own class C network and that subnet is 10.11.12. you know one, then you're you're gonna be broken whenever you try to move to a system that doesn't allow you to have that network. That's what 90% of IT environments are busted by, right? When they move to cloud, is they just haven't been in an environment where they can't assign a network, stuff like that. So portability is, you know, these platforms help. But a lot of what the portability is created by is just saying, well, you can't assign a network here. You have to write it for you know, me giving you a network. And once you've done those, those you know, accepted those abstractions or those, those opinionated limits, then your code becomes more portable because you're you're, the system's injecting those, those attributes.
0: So uh, let me break a little bit before <laughs> you go ahead with your response. So this is what platform as a service is supposed to do. But uh, it didn't take off. Why do you think it, uh, it did take off in the way everybody expected it to take
1: off? Oh boy! So platform—the challenge with platform as a service then we saw it in the Heroku days was that, and Heroku was a huge success. But it was only good for you know a certain small subset of things where you had a web service and you wanted load balancing, and you had certain you know Java code library with minimal dependencies, or and so it was very useful for that. I think Cloud Foundry is still seeing tremendous adoption, although Andrew Clay Schafer is gonna beat me up if I call it a pass, so I won't call it a platform as a service. Yeah. But I, I think that those platforms are very useful. It's where the code's dynamic and changing and coming in. And I, I, I think that calling platform as a service not successful is, is understating what we really learned and saw. But the reality is that just delivering code with your application is not enough. There's a lot more dependency graphs and and challenges. Right? People needed something that was a little bit uh, more black box as a package. If you want to think about it, which is what containers let you do. So you know, in a container, you can build a lot more pieces in that, and you can test it even more easily with a local infrastructure. But no, I this is to me a continuation of the platform as a story service that we've seen all along. Okay. We just realized that we were being too restrictive in those environments that we were allowing people use. We stepped down a level and used containers to drive that those platforms, and people realized it was the right abstraction level.
0: I think I, I, sorry, I agree with you because uh, that was the message I was delivering when I was part of OpenShift team. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I cannot uh, argue against that. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit, and uh, now let's go to... Uh, the future of enterprises. Uh, I uh, I sort of like, uh, one of the things uh, I have been telling uh, as a enterprise IT strategy makers is, think in terms of services, even if it is your own infrastructure, think in terms of services and make it composable. uh, And sort of like uh, build abstraction all the way to developers so that developers don't have to worry much about uh, handling these uh, uh, mucking around with the nuts and bolts that uh, that, uh, that underlie these services. So, where, where, where do you think everything is going from my enterprise point of view? And uh, where do you think enterprises are based on your conversation with IT leaders today? And how do you expect it to change to go to the future you are expecting?
1: <laughs> oh, wow, that's huge. Um, so, I, I agree with you 100%. Service orientation is a very important thing for people to consider which means that a lot of the, the, the encapsulation that people use for thinking about IT or their business ends up being something that's, that's you know, a service is something that's gonna run by itself and standalone it's be its own application. And I think that what we're gonna find is that companies are, are much readier now and they have to be even readier to break big workflows, big application, big business components into smaller pieces. And let those smaller pieces provide, you know, be integrated function. Boy, that just sounded like a ton of of gobbledygook. In the old days, you would you would write code and then you would put, you know, objects and layer all these pieces of code together and you build a big integrated application and roll it out as a single thing. But today, what we're doing is we're taking those same uh, abstraction boundaries inside of people's apps and delivering them as services. Partly because people don't own all the services and the data anymore right they might use third parties for some of these services they might use amazon or an internal cloud or right the, the idea of what your application is made of is so fundamentally different today and it's going to get even more extreme as we go forward that you can't look at, it at any business process as you know a big monolithic app that runs on a server somewhere they're all going to be composed of interconnected services, some of which you write, some of which you get from a service provider, some of which are third parties, and then your own application is going to be consumed as a service by other people. It's really, the, you know, people would talk about the API economy, and I think that that's a big deal. In some of the businesses that we're looking at being disrupted by machine learning, what they're realizing is that their business is not actually, their, their profit is not coming from their, their core business, it's actually coming from data that they generate. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're really at an inflection point where you might be you know se- uh, sending videos to people as a stream, but what you're really doing is learning a lot about how they behave and what their consumer behaviors are, and and learning how to monetize people's watching habits.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a pretty interesting point. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Not only how you do your services changes, but how you monetize on top of it also changes. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah.
1: And, and so I think services have a business imperative. On the flip side, I don't think we're ready as an IT in, as an IT industry to really cope with this type of extreme service orientation. Mm-hmm. You know, Managing services, having directories of services, service uh, level agreements, the SLAs behind those things, uh, tracking version histories and updates for them. I don't think we're we're really very far along in the journey of what it really looks like to deliver core IT as a service. I know that configuration management tools are completely this is one of the big things Digital Rebar had to do. Is when you talk about DevOps and automation, a configuration management tool is just about configuration. It's not about services. Yeah. And the big aha for us in Digital Rebar was Every workflow we built had steps that were service actions and steps that were configuration actions, and they were all mixed together. And so we would be walking down, a I have to provision a data center and say, well, you know, at this step, I actually need to register an entry in my you know, DNS infrastructure and create a name. That's a service. That's not a configuration step. You know, same with certificates, same with building clusters or getting database infrastructure, building users, right? All those things are service actions, they're not configuration steps. And so we were lucky in that we had to really think through this service orientation and mixing configuration and service orientation together as an orchestration event.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think uh, the service orientation sort of adds a level of complexity at a higher uh, layers of the stack I don't think people have thought about uh, governance of microservices and all those things at this point, and uh, especially uh, service discovery, and those are uh, tough problems on top of which you, you have the governance related issues. And also, as you said, SLAs are uh, important. We sort of like uh, have so much trouble uh, with SLAs when there is a single service provider providing the service to you, and there are issues. We saw with Twitter and Twitter developers. We saw with, uh, early In the early days of cloud, we saw with Amazon and all that. So this is going to be another problem which uh, we have to think about. Uh, yeah, we have a long way to go before we can mature there as an industry. We're,
1: we're excited when Kubernetes deploys an application, right? I, really doing monitoring on it and robustness and performance tuning on it and security analysis of a living Kubernetes application, and especially in a mixed environment. We're just at the beginning of that. As excited oh. as I am about uh, Kubernetes, it's, do
0: you do you think right. we, we will go into Kubernetes talk a little later? Yeah, do sure. Do you think the declarative model you uh, embraced by Kubernetes will help us solve some of the governance-related issues in the future? I, I do. Right now, we are not yeah. there. Like, uh, but uh, do you expect that to lead to that point? I,
1: I think they'll get solved to the extent that we have commonalities, and so yeah, Kubernetes. The reason I like it is that it's building an open ecosystem that. It's not trying to eat its own ecosystem. One yeah. of you know, one of the things that OpenStack did uh, badly, in my opinion, with the big tent was that it it basically created projects that competed with its own ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Kubernetes is doing a really good job of just being Kubernetes and allowing other people to create products and you know components and extensions and things like that. And to the extent that that happens, we're going to see that platform mature with all these capabilities? It's gonna be a little chaotic at first.
0: Yeah, I sort of like uh, wrote a blog post a couple of years back about Kubernetes being the kernel of uh, future application for architecture. So I was part of OpenShift team, so I said Kubernetes is the kernel. OpenShift is one of the distros, just like uh, how Red Hat Enterprise Linux was one of the distros under uh, Linux kernel. So, uh, yeah, that way Kubernetes uh, is doing it right in terms of the community. So, that brings us to uh, your experience with Kubernetes as a platform as well as the community. So, uh, do you think it is is going in the right direction? Do you, where do you expect uh, Kubernetes will be a couple of years from now? And do you also, this is a little controversial question in the sense that, do you think Kubernetes is the on-ramp for Google public cloud?
1: Wow. So I, I think Kubernetes is going to, barring some, some type of bizarre governance cha- challenges, I think Kubernetes is on track to, to being the dominant container management platform because I, I think it's it's narrow and specific. It's not, you know, Google's done a good job of not sort of owning the community, trying to manipulate it that much. You have to do some because you need you need it to grow, but I, I think they're doing a pretty good job of steering it and giving it over to the Linux Foundation and pieces like that, so a lot of kudos for that. I also think it's simple. I know people love to talk about Kubernetes being too complex. To me, that that's, bad. that's just a marketing miss. The reality is Kubernetes really isn't that complex for what it does, and so it it sort of has that right sweet spot. It's not so simple that it doesn't do much. It's not so complex that it's hard to understand. Some other platforms that I think are also very good, like Mesos, I think are harder to understand. And so that that typically makes it less attractive. And I think Docker Swarm on the other end is super simple to get running, but I think is, has, it makes it harder for other companies to add and extend and become an ecosystem around it. So it, it's it's sort of this sweet spot in, in market. As far as an on-ramp for Google Cloud, I think that it's a threat to Amazon because I do think it creates portability that allows companies to not care about the underlying infrastructure so much. And from that perspective, I think it, it creates opportunities for Google cloud to become more relevant. Uh, So I think it's a very good strategy there. The reality of all these cloud services is that it's not just going to be Kubernetes that makes them win. It's going to be the services that people want to consume around Kubernetes Mm -hmm. and how they build an enterprise story and adoption for that. And so, Google's got a ways to go, uh, to, to you know. In all in all frankness, and they know it. Before they before they can embrace that, I would be really excited to see Kubernetes uh, create some ecosystem services that compete with Amazon's. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then I think Google can be in a very interesting place, meaning that you could say, "Oh, I don't want to use uh, Amazon RDS because I can just spin up a Kubernetes service mm-hmm. that does that." Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it becomes, you know, potentially more and more interesting from a a Google perspective, but it just, it's going to more level the playing field than it give Google an advantage.
0: Okay. So can can you dig a little deeper into how Kubernetes fits into your composable automation framework you're advocating?
1: (laughs) Oh boy. So Kubernetes for us is, is really an application abstraction and what, so we look at, at infrastructure like Kubernetes and see you know an interface for Kubernetes that helps developers and operators to an extent simplify their life by programming against that abstraction. There's an underlay for Kubernetes that actually has to care about the infrastructure that it's running on, right? The disk drives and the networks and the operating system and the container engine and the software defined networking layer. And there's, all of this real stuff that has to get done (laughs) correctly for you to run a data center under Kubernetes, and which is what we do. That's our, our focus is this underlay automation layer. So we're very excited because we, we see Kubernetes as creating portability that helps people move from cloud to physical and back. If we can abstract away and automate the things that make the, the thing the underlay distinct and hard to use. So when I look at, so this isn't exactly a composability question for you, although maybe it is. So when I look at the thing that broke OpenStack deployments and OpenStack deployments got pretty broken, they, because every deployment people did was custom and different because every data center is custom and different. And OpenStack is fundamentally a private cloud infrastructure so it had to deal with this problem. what we're trying to do is help create composability under Kubernetes so that it doesn't matter if it's Dell or HP or Calico or Juniper uh, networking, right? It it's we're trying you're know, we're, we're building all those pieces together and then creating an abstraction layer. So we want one operational environment that you can then write upgrades, security, HA patterns, things like that. And then if you decompose the inputs for that, then your your automation infrastructure becomes much faster and simpler under the covers. The thing that I don't believe in is I don't think that Kubernetes is the answer to solving that problem. And I've I've seen a bit of this. It's slacked off, I I feel like, recently, where people were trying to run Kubernetes on Kubernetes, just like they were trying to run OpenStack on OpenStack. Mm -hmm. And the abstractions are missing. So when you do that, Kubernetes doesn't have any concept of... Uh, network topologies or multiple disk drives or you know those are all t- purposely abstracted from the platform mm-hmm. and so uh, you know i'm I'm a pretty big believer solve the underlay make that work that's an operational <laughs> issue uh, we need to get the site reliability engineers involved in fixing it and then you know let let that be a standard layer and then people can run kubernetes on top of that,
0: okay. yeah. that yeah yeah go ahead
1: and then you know we we can actually orchestrate up above. So we we actually this was fun. We did OpenStack on top of Kubernetes using Helm.
0: That is going to be my the, my question. <laughs> so, so All right, that, good that, while it, uh, talk uh, when you talk about it, like uh, can you convince me, the skeptic, on how this will be a valuable way to go forward if I am. Totally, starting off, uh, starting off on my modernization journey.
1: So I <laughs> so have a open thirty stack minutes in, and, and we get to the meat. All right. <laughs> so if I already have an
0: OpenStack deployment. I fully see the value in manageability and all that. If I'm starting off on my uh, modernization journey, why would I consider Kubernetes to manage my OpenStack? I could also use go native with Kubernetes and uh, Kubernetes, and uh, probably use the uh, public cloud services along with it. So.
1: uh totally. So yes. There, there is a mess in the message of Kubernetes under OpenStack, because ultimately-
0: No, Kubernetes under OpenStack, I fully understand. Well, OpenStack okay. uh, uh, being managed by Kubernetes is what I'm still trying to g- find an answer. like right right. Yeah, it gives so some management advantages, makes it easy to deploy and things like that. But beyond that, if I'm starting off, why would I put OpenStack to be managed by Kubernetes? I could as well go off all native, uh, I can have OpenStack underneath and run Kubernetes on top, that is fine. That's a understandable scenario sure. for me. But uh, running Kubernetes and uh, using it to manage OpenStack is what I couldn't understand, if, especially if I'm starting off new.
1: So that's exactly what I'm talking about too. And it, it's a mess because it, it doesn't, it seems backwards to people. And it also sends the message that Kubernetes is the better infrastructure platform than OpenStack but the reality is it might be that if you need to do virtual machine management, OpenStack, there's a ton of abstractions and hooks and and that's a hard thing to do. And OpenStack has evolved to do that pretty well. But OpenStack itself is just an application. That application is composed of a whole bunch of services that have to interact in very specific ways. And Kubernetes is a good way to run an application that has a lot of services that have to interact in controlled ways. And so, when I when I look at, at my history with OpenStack, right, we haven't really worked out, and you could I could I'm not you know I could cast blame in a whole bunch of places, but the the reality is that there isn't a really good pattern for dealing with OpenStack services in an upgradable managed way. And so what people have been doing is putting those services in containers, because it makes them easier to manage and deploy. And then if you're gonna do that, then you wanna put OpenStack. You know, you want to manage the containers that are running OpenStack, and if you're going to manage containers, you're going to do it with Kubernetes. It's. I mean, it's. It. It feels. At, you know, on the surface, you know, sort of like ah, it's the wrong order. But once you've containerized an OpenStack deployment, Kubernetes is a logical way to manage it, and and we're seeing. We. I'm actually super impressed with how it's working. So, we actually are doing exactly that install. We install Kubernetes first. And then we install Helm, which is a package. It's like a, a application template engine for, for Kubernetes. And then we install OpenStack using OpenStack containers and Helm templates, or Helm packs is what they're called. And it works. It needs a way to go. It's not all the way production ready because you have to inject, and this is going to be not surprising after this conversation. You have to inject the physical topology information and storage and all the all the actual, this is what the infrastructure is, into those Helm charts so that you actually have an OpenStack deployment that respects the physical environment. That's hard. That's something that Digital Rebar was designed to do, so we, it's easy from our perspective to add that information. But you, once you've got that information, you inject it into the charts. Doing the Kubernetes on an OpenStack and managed by Kubernetes is a pretty logical thing.
0: Okay, so uh, i I like to uh, sort of uh, see all these things in a visual way. So it's not uh, OpenStack stacked on top of Kubernetes, it's like peers basically. Kubernetes is handling the services on top of OpenStack that's running on containers, rather than managing the entire OpenStack uh, itself.
1: Yes, you're right, you, you, you're not tunneling, uh, you're not putting OpenStack in containers, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you, okay. no, you're, you're putting OpenStack services in so, not yeah, yeah. in containers.
0: Exactly, I think that there is a big uh, marketing message issue there, uh, that's the reason for my confusion, okay, that's good. Okay, okay now okay, uh, one last controversial thing, let's talk a little sure. bit uh, before we close down. I know <laughs> OpenStack... Has a future now? Let me wear cloud opinion hat now. I am not cloud opinion, but let me wear a hat now and ask this question: Does OpenStack does it have a future?
1: OpenStack, oh my goodness, yes, without a doubt. OpenStack has a future. It's not the it's not the future that we thought it was in twenty ten, where it was running all of the data centers infrastructure. It it is a narrower future for the the software itself that runs, I think it's a VM management platform. We will need VMs for for a long, long time. They're an important part of any infrastructure. And so I think that OpenStack has a long, glorious history in front of it, but a narrower history than we thought seven years ago when we we thought OpenStack was gonna be the data center operating system of the data center, basically the data center operating system. And I would caution the same thing with Kubernetes. I don't think that Kubernetes is going to be the operating system for the data center. Data centers are hybrid beasts with a lot of moving parts, and we're going to use Kubernetes for places where the abstractions add value, and we're not going to use it for places where it doesn't. you know, it's a hybrid world with a lot of moving parts, and as soon as we think that we're going to have one thing that rules it all, that to me is a warning flag that you're 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 trying to fit, you're trying to square peg a data center round hole, and you you're going to find much faster adoption by fi- finding the things that fit your use cases really well, um, and then leaving leaving the other things alone. And this is to me is part of what OpenStack has struggled with instead of focusing on the things that it could do really well, OpenStack had a huge appetite for solving problems that were not in its core domain. Yeah,
0: I I fully agree with you on that. That's my criticism about OpenStack too. Yep. Awesome. I think it was a great conversation and uh, we covered some of the interesting topics uh, uh, among the so-called thought leaders. So let's uh, uh, just, uh, I'm looking forward to putting it out and getting people to listen to it. So what are the uh, conferences you're going to attend in the next month or so, so that uh, people who listen to this can come meet you in those conferences? And where can they find you online, especially your Twitter and uh, other social media profiles?
1: Awesome. Boy, I'm traveling like crazy in May. So online, I'm Zehicle. So people know me pretty well. Uh, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E, like vehicle with a Z. And then I blog on my name, robhirschfeld.com, And then a lot of content, Shows up on Racken, so we're being careful to do a whole bunch of the site reliability engineering content on Racken, and then you'll see me. I, I try to have the more opinionated stuff shows up on my blog. <laughs> keep keep Racken pure. And boy, so I'm traveling to, I'm at DockerCon next week. I'm at Collision, which is in New Orleans. I'm at Glucon in Denver. I am at DevOps Days Austin, which is going to be amazing. I think it's sold out. Great show coming up. Uh I'm at the OpenStack conference in Boston and then I am at ITX Interop. uh, And I'm not giving those in in calendar order in Las Vegas. So every week in May, I think I'm at if not at at two, I'm not if not one, sometimes two conferences. It's super exciting. It's going to be great. And I Mm -hmm. hope to meet meet listeners there. You know, come up, punch me, hug me, whichever way you're you're. Disp- don't <laughs> punch me. Whichever way you're disposed to, to uh, see my views.
0: Yeah, it was great talking with Rob, and uh, he's always a fun guy to debate on things. And uh, I think today he didn't disappoint us. And I uh, will come back again uh, probably at a later time with Rob to talk about what is happening there then. And uh, thanks, Rob. I appreciate your time.
1: Appreciate it. Great, great interview. Thanks for talking.